0: Welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me tonight is Morgana. Tonight we're talking with Allison Jornlin again. We always love to have her back. Yes, we do. I love to be here. (laughs) There she is. There she is. And she has, Professor Jornlin has lots of good (laughs) stuff to talk about with us tonight. We're going to talk about another historical woman in the paranormal field. Why don't you introduce her?
1: Yeah, so I'm just an honorary <laughs> professor.
0: <laughs> <Not> <laughs> That's what real, Morgana calls
1: not you. <laughs> a real professor, but uh, I am a researcher and I do read widely. And I, you know, I think uh, you know I love doing the podcast with you guys because you guys are so well-read as well. And uh, today we're going to talk about Zora Neale Hurston, who is an incredible figure in. Um, in African-American literature, but, uh, there's more to her than that. There's a paranormal side, which we're going to be delving into today. Uh, because I think she qualifies as, you know, one of the women in the paranormal that, uh, I take as, uh, my area of specialty. Uh, so there's lots of women that have made contributions to the paranormal field, um, over the years. Uh, and even beyond in areas like cryptozoology they're incredible women so um, there there have been women in these pursuits you know forever but the ones I focus on are the ones who could be considered investigators because certainly we have mediums And mystics and psychics of all sorts uh, that are female and uh, in witchcraft uh, there's been tremendous contributions by women but uh, my forte my area of interest is in paranormal investigation is in people who have really delved into these mysteries of life as investigators and so in addition to being an author of some incredible novels, uh, Zora Neale Hurston was also an anthropologist. Uh, and so an awesome one. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we're going to talk about her anthropological work um, in the Bahamas, uh, in the uh, rural, sa- rural south, uh, in uh, New Orleans, uh, in uh, Jamaica, and in Haiti. And Harlem. Yes. <laughs> Yes, uh, she was a big figure in the Harlem Renaissance. She was really a
2: Renaissance woman, like in every sense of that term. She was a playwright. She was an actress. She founded um, an acting college, I believe, or an acting program, I believe. Um, She worked as an an acting acting instructor. um, And she was an anthropologist and was a student of Franz Boas and a contemporary of Margaret Mead.
1: Yes, so let's talk a little bit about that. So Zora Neale Hurston, American writer and anthropologist, she embedded herself in hoodoo and voodoo culture in uh, the South, beginning uh, in the the late uh, 20s uh, and early 30s. And uh, she would spend about uh, the next 20 years studying with conjured doctors in the American South and a voodoo priest in the Bahamas, Jamaica, and Haiti. So uh, let's just do a little timeline of Zora Neale Hurston um, for people. So um, she was born in 1891, and then uh, later on she, there's a lot of fascinating stuff about her that uh, like she actually (laughs) uh, lied about her age. So she had a high school education. Uh, so she was actually 10 years older um, than she than she let on. on. And that wasn't just because, you know, there's lots of women that lie about their age and have historically lied about their age. And, you know, some of that has to do with the fact that society at large, at least in the United States, seems to think that we have an expiration date. <laughs> as uh, far as our worth is concerned, but um, that wasn't the only reason um, her mother died when she was young and then she didn't she had to leave home and she didn't get the opportunity to go to high school so uh, she actually lied about her age and uh, went to, went through high school and got a high school education when uh, you know she was essentially in her 20s. Uh, then um, in 1925 she was able to get a a scholarship to Bernard College and begin studying with famous anthropologist Franz Boas now um, as far as her areas of research that we're going to be most interested in uh, she began in uh, 1929 uh, with research into Obeah in the Bahamas and so um, she was very interested in studying her African roots, and in studying African religion, and uh, and folklore, and making it uh, something that was worthwhile uh, for uh, people, um, you know, lay people, but also for anthropologists. So she was looking at, as an anthropologist, like how can we elevate. Uh, the African-American community uh, by, you know, studying folklore and practices in the rural south where she was from, uh, Eatonville, Florida, originally. Uh, And then, you know, she went on to, you know, study other uh, African uh, cultures, the other parts of the diaspora, uh, and specifically looking into, uh, you know, what we would think of as uh, voodoo today. So um, that research began in uh, 1929 in the Bahamas and then um, she would return to the States later on um, in 1930 and she went back to her home in Eatonville, Florida to uh, study local folklore. Then she travels to New Orleans and studies with several conjure doctors several priests of, of voodoo uh, and, you know, people who are also involved in uh, the sympathetic magic of the region called hoodoo. And she later publishes her, her research in the Journal of American Folklore and in a book entitled Mules and Men in 1935, which is awesome. I don't know if you yep. ever heard um, that book, like, performed, but there's a great... Uh, there's a great uh, version on Audible, which is just hilarious, and, but also has a lot of good information in it. You know, it's like fun um, up until you get to the end when then it's, it's about voodoo in New Orleans and um, her experiences, her personal experiences. Uh, but uh, it's just fun and humorous and just... Uh, and, and that is such a lively adaptation that's available as an audiobook on Audible. So I'd really See, suggest See, now that. I have
0: to listen to it. Yeah. Because I've read it. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting. You can really tell that Alice Walker was inspired by her. Yeah, so we're going to get... Because, <laughs> yeah. Because, and it's in Of Mules and Men, You can, that dialect mm-hmm. that she very, very carefully transcribes is... Absolutely, the same dialect with very few differences in the color purple by Alice Walker. Oh, so when I first g- started yeah, reading it, a I was really hearing great it. insight. I was hearing it in Celie's voice and and uh, mm-hmm. Shug's voices. I you know, and I was I just started laughing because that's who I was seeing in my head. Yeah,
1: so that is an excellent uh, insight. Because, yeah, that is totally, I, I, would, I would agree with that. And um, I really like the audio interpretation because you really get the flavor for it. And, you know, that was one of the magic things about Zora Neale Hurston is she could travel between these different worlds. Uh, you know, she was from Eatonville, but then she could go and, and uh, be part of the intelligentsia in Harlem, and which has a very, very different flavor. Uh, from Mm -hmm, down mm -hmm. south Um, and then she could go to different countries and interact uh, with uh, people um, from all social strata so she was really incredible Uh, in uh, so then after Mules and Men is published in 1935 she's uh, awarded a Guggenheim Guggenheim fellowship uh, to study uh, in Jamaica So she goes to Jamaica, and from April to September studies uh, religious practices there. And then uh, in 1937, her most famous book, Their Eyes Were Watching God, um, is published. So her, and and she actually wrote that in Haiti, so because Mm -hmm. her Guggenheim Fellowship is extended. She goes to Haiti to continue her, her voodoo research. Uh, and then she writes, their eyes were watching God in seven weeks or so it says.
0: Which this- is horrific to me that, <laughs> that how fast her mind must have been I going.
1: Know. Right. And she was also in a foreign country. Um, and in in a foreign country where she didn't always feel so comfortable. You know, even though she learned a lot and wrote a lot about it in her next book, um, you know, she definitely had some reservations to say the least. Uh so then yeah. um 1938 is when Tell My Horse is published. And that's all about uh doesn't include information about the Bahamas, but does include information about Jamaica uh, obey practices and, uh, voodoo in Haiti. Uh, so a lot happens after this, but, uh, this is primarily, um, where her paranormal research is concerned. So, uh, in 1959, she suffers a stroke and is forced to move to a welfare home in Florida. And then she dies of heart disease. Uh, the following year in 1960, well, right at the beginning of the year, January 28th, 1960. And she's buried in an unmarked grave in Fort, Fort Pierce, Florida, and pretty much forgotten, which is just a travesty. But then, thankfully, in 1973, she's re- rediscovered by author Alice Walker, who's as you said best known for her uh, her work um, the color purple which was a fantastic book and then also became a famous movie uh but i in college i really loved alice walker's uh poetry but uh yes. so alice walker goes in search for her uh, for zora neale hurston in 1973 and in 1975 she publishes an article called in search of zora neale hurston in the march 1975 issue of ms magazine so that's why we know about zora neale hurston today you know like so many uh, fierce females uh, of the past she might have been forgotten and I'm glad that she wasn't and and we have a lot to talk about today because there are some amazing stories that came out of her research and and that's what we can get into next but I wanted to just I know I've been going through this timeline but I just want to give people like a foundation before we jump in. so um so how about you guys like um, when did you first hear about Dora Neale Hurston and and what do you know about her that you want to share
2: um, I have somewhat fanciful tidbits about Zora Neale Hurston because you covered all of the really good timeline pieces, um, that I discovered while reading about her. Like she got into a fist fight with her stepmother.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Um, Who was only six years older,
2: y- older than, than her. Was. So you can yes, understand. Yes, I can completely, completely understand there. that. Um, that's... <clears throat> She was friends with Langston Hughes and re- co-wrote a play with him. Yes. Um which and I mean, they did is,
1: have a falling out later. They did have a falling them. out later, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but she was originally friends with him. Um, they also co-wrote or they co-created um, Fire, but there was only one issue of it. Um, they oh, didn't create yeah. Flame itself. It was a it was a newsletter thing. Um, yeah, it was
0: like a, a small literary magazine, kind of.
2: Which kinda I think thing. was cool. Um, before she died, she wrote to W.E.B. Du Bois to say that there should be a special cemetery for notable black, you know, creative types, basically. And oh, unfortunately, yeah, some artists. Unfortunately, he kind of blew her off and was like,
0: no, <laughs> we don't need to do that. Um, and so she was lost. Right. And, well, uh, she
1: she could have been one of the prime beneficiaries for that. Right? Thank I God think for Alice Walker. the I
0: know. Um, I love the story of Alice Walker finding the grave. Although she does admit it may not actually be her grave. But she first goes to look for her grave in the town she was born in. Because that's logical. Yeah. The, she, she figured that you know, that that's where she would be and she wasn't there. And so she tracks her down until she finds the nursing home she was in at the end of her life. And it was in another town, not too far away, but it was in another town. And she discovered that she was in this very small cemetery and there was no marking on the grave at all. So she describes in her essay, walking around this cemetery I think she says something to the effect like a mad woman because I'm talking to her the whole time. Mm -hmm. I'm saying, Zora, I went here to find you. I went there to find you and I can't find you. You're supposed to be in here. Where are you? And she said she finally screamed to the sky, where are you? And took a step and fell down into an indentation of grave. Mm -hmm. So where a grave had sunk some. So she stepped and fell. And that's where she was like, This is where she is. Now, I would like to think that Zora just kind of gave her a little push (laughs) from (laughs) beyond. You know, just a little tap her on the shoulder, make her not look where she's going so she Mm -hmm. falls down in the right place. It could have just been she tripped because she was clumsy. It it could be anything. (laughs) But I like it makes a good story that she found the grave because of her ghost. Yes, Zora pushed her. So I accept
1: and Zora, it. Zora, she would push. I think she, she would. Push. Yes, she would. She was,
2: by all accounts, an extremely charming, magnetic woman, but also she was fierce. Yes, I was going to say fiery, but yes,
1: definitely. I she was agree. fierce
0: in all ways. Yes, she was. So and, and also
1: oh. prophetic. Which we'll get to next. Go go ahead, Morgana. Sorry, I didn't want really to um,
2: cut you off. Also, she has had two works uh, posthumously published. One of which, what the manuscript was found in the Smithsonian Archives. Um, and that is, I don't have it right in front of me. I have to turn a page.
1: Oh, that's okay. I didn't know this little tidbit, so I'm excited.
2: Um, Every tongue got to confess is her third volume of Black Southern Folk Tales that was published in 2001. So there are more folktales. And also there's Barracoon, the story of the last Black Cargo, which was published in 2018, which is when she tracked down um, Cujo Lewis, who was the last living um, member of person... The last living enslaved person who had survived the Civil War and could remember being taken in a raid in Africa and the Middle Passage and mm-hmm. brought here, and she got she interviewed him and got his life story and wrote it down and published it. Um, but it did not get published until 2018. So if you haven't read it, it is very cool. And I think something that's a really important piece of history that she captured there that everybody should read about
0: Excellent. She was really good at finding the stories, I think. I think she had a, you know how they used to say about reporters, they had a nose for news. I think mm-hmm. she had a nose for people's stories. And she was charming enough to be able to inveigle herself. And she liked people so much that she could just enter into any any conversation. And she was a very good listener from what I have have been reading about her. So... I can totally believe that that story would never have happened if she hadn't found him and then was able to get him to tell her the story.
1: Absolutely. So, um, she was also able to inveigle herself into, uh, the very exclusive world, uh, world of voodoo. Now, um, when you're reading mules and men, You know like I said there's a lot of folklore and it's it's a it's a lot of tall tales uh, in the beginning Mm -hmm. and then you get to you know some more troubling things like maybe people are being cursed um, and they there are things being put into them (laughs) like uh, small animals and it's (laughs) You know through magical means and then you're like wow this is becoming a very different kind of book and then suddenly um, Zora is in New Orleans and she's studying with two headed doctors and uh, she she actually apprentices with um, you know about seven of them and then then she meets uh, Marie Laveau's nephew Luke Turner and he, uh, now she's, she'd been, she's had initiations with these other conjure doctors, but then she's initiated by Luke Turner, by Luke Turner um, into voodoo as well. And she writes about this experience of fasting and laying nude with her navel pressed to a snake skin for about three days. And she reported that after 69 hours and five psychic experiences, she felt no hunger but only exaltation. But she didn't describe the five psychic experiences. That really bothers me. <laughs> I'm like, come on. You, I'm like, don't be an astral tease. I need the dates. What? Um, <laughs> Because, you know, that would be perfect to talk about on the show. But she doesn't describe what they are. There's one psychic experience that I'll talk about in a moment um, that she did describe. So uh, there's a, a lot more um, to to Zora's induction into voodoo than her personal sacrifice, um, which, you know, she endures well. I mean, I'm always, I'm always like, I- I'm sorry, guys, but my mind goes to Strange places and i i'm like wondering like okay you're on this couch on the snake skin for like three days what was the bathroom situation dude yes. <laughs> did they have a bucket in there she does describe that they have a pitcher of water um uh, but i need to i need to know if there's a bucket there too i feel uh, like anyway. there has
2: to be a bucket <laughs> otherwise the snake skin would get messy yeah,
1: yeah. and then you wouldn't want that to happen so um so that was her personal sacrifice. But but they do also uh sacrifice um I believe it's a sheep. Now that I'm thinking of it, I, I'm like, was it a goat? I'm not sure. But they did, um at the at the conclusion of these rites, um, sacrifice a sheep. And, you know, I'm just gonna come come out and say it. Um, I love Zora. There were things that she did with animals, um, that I don't like. But that doesn't mean I can't love her work. So I'm a vegan, so I gotta come clean and just say, I am not supporting animal sacrifice. But um, you know, I'm here to to tell you about Zora and some incredible things that she learned. And um, not in this case in uh, Louisiana, but uh, in the other sacrifices that are detailed in uh, Tell My Horse in Haiti, uh, they actually do eat the animals they sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So it's there, these animals are part of the feast. Um, mm-hmm. In in the only the blood south, goes to uh, the spirits. Right, right. That's, right. that's in, how it works. The, yeah, in um in Louisiana, it was it was different uh, in that it didn't seem that they were feasting. Um, there wasn't a feast. Uh, uh, exactly associated with the sacrifice, and there's also a, a black uh, cat bone ritual, which she describes in some detail in uh, some of her work, and, um, and so I was very sad to read that, but, um, so the important part that, that I want to take away from this, though, is that um, as she's initiated, she receives a name, uh, she's called the Rainbringer, and they actually, as part of the ceremony, they, uh, draw, a, draw a, a, thunderbolt or a lightning bolt on her back. And so this is part, becomes part of her identity that storms talk to her. And this actually saves her life in the Bahamas. So as I said, she's in the Bahamas starting in 1929, uh, and she's, she gets there in October. And, um, you know, she starts her studies. And she suddenly she's in the middle of a violent hurricane. And she's staying with a family. And she gets this premonition that the house is going to come down around them in moments. And she gets everybody out. And what happens the house crashes to the ground and there were, there was so much death that she saw associated with the, with the hurricane. And this really influenced her because, um, in her most famous novel, their eyes are watching God, the climax is a violent hurricane. So this really worked on her psyche. Uh, but you know, she did feel blessed by the premonition, um, And not everybody was blessed that way. A lot of houses came down during that hurricane. But she knew before it was going to happen and got uh, the family out and got herself out. So um, it's just, uh, you know, one of the premonitions, uh, you know, she had precognition. And this is one example that she does describe, whereas there are other psychic experiences (laughs) we know she mentions, but she doesn't tell us anything more about them, sadly. Um, so, you know, she was devastated by, you know, seeing, um, the aftermath, and more than 300 houses in Nassau in the Bahamas were destroyed, and the bodies of the dead littered the streets, uh, but Zora had been saved by the spirit, or so she believed. And, you know, this starts, this starts her odyssey as the rain bringer, and, uh, she goes on, then, to um, to study in uh, Jamaica first. And in Jamaica, oh, man, there are so many fascinating stories. I'm going to just share a few of my favorites uh, that deal with the Jamaican idea of ghosts, which are called duppies. Now, duppy, that's such an adorable name, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Doesn't it sound I
1: mean, cute? It just it sounds, sounds really cute. Harmless, but no. <laughs> yeah, but it's like the opposite. It's like the opposite of harmless. Uh, it's a funny sounding name for an evil, evil thing. So the people in Jamaica, uh, at least at the time and, you know, maybe still today, probably since traditions carry on, so Jamaicans view ghosts in a kind of Stevens. Stephen King pet cemetery kind of way. So they are dark reflections of the person that once was. So Duppies are what's left of you after your, uh, heart and mind, um, decay. And the idea is that your heart and mind are the only things that have been keeping you from doing the evil that you are truly capable of. So once they're gone, all bets are off. and um, so they they have an a, elaborate ceremony um, which is a nine day wake for the deceased called the mm-hmm. nine Night. And um, so essentially, uh, it's a big feast where they 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 invite the spirit uh, of a deceased, a deceased loved one, to come back into the home and party with them and celebrate and but at the end they chase the spirit out and tell the spirit that he or she that that they can never come back and uh, so at one of these sem- ceremonies Zora was told about a close encounter one of the attendees had uh, when she was a child So this uh, witness confessed that she had snuck away from home after the death of a close relative to see if duppies really do rise from the grave on the third day after uh, burial. At midnight, of course. That's when they're supposed to rise. So she climbed a mango tree and waited in her hidden perch above the ceremony until the hour approached. And think of it as... um, kind of like waiting up for Santa, but in a graveyard.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) like in a macabre waiting for Santa kind of way.
1: Right, absolutely. That's what we do here in the macabre. Anyway, so as midnight arrived, the witness saw something strange above her relative's grave. She described it in this way. Here's the quote. Then I saw a thick mist come from the grave and make a huge white ball which settled on the grave. At this at this point um the girl became you know convinced uh that hey duppies, duppies do rise from the grave as they say at the appointed time and she ran home never to doubt any duppy stories again so um i always le- i you know that's um one of my favorites just because it is uh, you know so visual like, you can yeah. imagine her, this little kid climbing up the mango tree and just, like, waiting breathless for something to happen and then actually seeing something.
2: Yeah. And immediately being like, yep, okay, that's a real thing. Not going to doubt <laughs> grandma anymore. I'm going to go home right now and be a good little girl for the rest of my life. Because... <laughs> I was
1: going to just no. right into her. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, now, um, so here is... Another favorite story uh, from her time uh, in Jamaica that I call the Frog Whisperer. So, um, so okay. Now, a little bit of history. Um, so Zora is with the so so-called Maroons um, in um, the mountains of Jamaica. So these are these are free people who escaped from slavery uh, before uh, you know in the 1700s so you know way before like w- you know when we're thinking of slavery you know we're, we're thinking about you know how far it went into you know the,
0: the 19th century
1: yes yes and and so these people were able to free themselves in the 1700s when they were enslaved in Jamaica So, what they did is, uh, they were able to escape to the mountains. And these were, um, these were uh, areas that were hard to get into. So, it, it, uh, the mountains were their fortress, I guess. That's how I'll put it. And, you know, they were in a defensible position and they were able to, to, um, fight off the slave owners and, you know, finally enter into treaties with them to get their freedom. So, and they, uh, did that through their own grit. Now, okay. So she's in, in one of these communities and she's making friends and, um, there's one, uh, leader in the community called Col- uh, Colonel Rowe, and he introduced her to a local religious leader, who she only refers to in the book, Tell My Horse, as Medicine Man. So she's having a lovely discussion one night with uh, Colonel Rowe on his porch with Medicine Man. And she's actually talking to Medicine Man about all the poisons um, that he knows about and cures. So uh, that's something that comes through. In Zoro's work for the American Journal of Folklore and also in Tell My Horse, is that there's this uh, incredible uh, African American knowledge uh, having to do with herbal remedies and medicines and also poisons. And so that's what she's talking to Medicine Man about. And uh, she's kind of frustrated because. She can't hear him very well over all the jungle frogs. That's why the story is called <laughs> the Frog Whisperer. Because <laughs> there's the jungle frogs <laughs> making all this racket, and she's she's getting really mad, and um, that she wants to hear Medicine Man, and she can barely hear him. And she's she says, you know, she wishes they would shut up. And Colonel Rowe uh, tells her that they're making such racket because it will soon rain. Um, but then added that if, uh, Zora wanted them silenced, he knew the medicine man could do it. Um, he said, the medicine man can't affect the wa- the weather, the rain's still going to come, but he can shut up the frogs. <laughs> and she's <laughs> like, what? And, uh, and she says, he did stop those frogs over on that peak? Yes, it was the answer. So Zora had to see this, so she told medicine man to go ahead. All Medicine Man does is he stands up and turns his face toward the the mountain peak and makes a quick motion with one hand as he inhales deeply and instantly the forest is silent. (laughs) Dude. um, (laughs) Right. I I just think this is so, you know, just imagine it. Um, It would be like such a confirmation. So not only... um, that, but he tells Zora that he can turn them back on again after their conversation has concluded at the end of the evening, and um, he does so. Like, he he says, okay, you know, we're going to go to bed, and so he's walking down the street, and he says, I'm going to whistle, and they're going to start up again, and he whistled, and everything was back to the way it had been, and uh, she doesn't know how everywhere. to, right she doesn't know how to explain that and that's what i love about tell my horse because you can tell there are things that happen that she is skeptical of and that's what i love about Mm -hmm. her because she can have she can have two things in her mind at once she can say okay i know that you know there's folklore which you know part of that is making things up and i know that uh you know, there, there's some beliefs because of lack of education that aren't true, and, you know, just people talk. And, and so she knows all of that, that there's all of this business that is not true about the paranormal aspects of in these cultures. But then she's like, and then stuff like this happens. <laughs> so And then he makes the frogs quiet. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so she'll tell you, like, both things at once she'll she'll be like well i didn't know how they did that as if it's a trick right but then she'll yeah. just tell you like right out hey this happened i don't know how how we explain this and and the stuff that that she talks about that you know it's not like the obvious stuff like this frog thing and the other things that we'll talk about it's like you know, if, if she was making it up, she'd probably think of, you know, something more something sensational. Something super
2: dramatic.
1: Right, right.
2: Like, that that somebody made it rain, rain blood or, or something right. like, yeah, like or,
0: that. Or, or lightning came down and struck a tree after the dude pointed at it or something. Right. You know, that, that, yeah. I but kinda, frogs. I kind
2: of love being able to turn the frogs off and
0: on. Yeah. I yeah, mean, like, that, like a little switch.
1: It's so sweet. Cool. I would love to be able to do that because it's yeah. paranormal, but I mean, it's not, you know, it's it's not, um, you know, like some of these things, you know, some some of the stuff in Tell My Horse uh, is, is frightening. And I think... Oh, yeah. Zora Neale Hurston was frightened by the power of voodoo. Uh, and, you know, some of the things, you know, I'm wondering, like, how much of this is you know, from the common people, how much of this is from, you know, the um, upper classes in Haiti, which, you know, we're maybe trying to get away from their roots, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, she is great at conveying the situations that she's in, in all their complexity. Uh, and I just, you know, there, there's so much to be learned, but it, it's also... It's also uh, confusing and frightening as when you're learning anything new. So one yeah. of my <laughs> one of my other favorite stories is okay. There is just some crazy stuff in there about voodoo, and I don't know exactly. Like I said, some of this may be sensationalist, um, and I should just put in here that a, a c- companion book that I read with uh, "Tell My Horse" because there were some like. Um, gaps in there that I wanted filled. And I found another wom- woman in the paranormal that we'll probably have to talk about more in the future. But I'm going to mention her here. Uh, because when you're reading Tell My Horse, a great book to read it with is by Maya Deren. Maya yes, Deren, I knew you were going to bring her up. Yeah, she was <laughs> a, a, a Ukrainian-born filmmaker and dancer. And she went to to Haiti to about about 10 years or so after zora neale hurston so uh, Zora neale hurston is in in, in, there in the late 30s and um maya darren is there in the late 40s 47 and and i also think she went back in 1950 so um, yeah she wanted to study the ritual dances which you know is another fascinating element of, of voodoo culture Um, but she just became, uh, so, so enamored with, um, the voodoo religion, uh, that she wrote a whole book, which is very scholarly, called, uh, Divine Horsemen, the Living Gods of Haiti. And she also made a film of that same name, which you can watch on YouTube, so, um, and there are animal sacrifices in there, but thankfully they're not in color. <laughs> so that helps a little bit. Yeah,
0: it's a black and white film.
1: Yeah, it's black and white. But, um, so it's fascinating to watch uh, the film, and also the book is just, like, so detailed. And um, so it's a great companion book to to read with How My Horse. Uh, and I, ha- I have to, what I have to share about Maya is, um, interestingly like Zora went to a lot of voodoo ceremonies in Haiti but she doesn't really talk about becoming mounted by the voodoo spirits which are called um loa so so uh these spirits you know there's one god but then there's also uh, the, who's inaccessible but then there's these spirits that you can petition um and they have all different personalities um, and they have all different aspects, and they're called the loa. Um, and so, I, it was interesting to me that Zora Neale Hurston doesn't talk about being mounted by the spirit, which is—I should mention—the uh, there's a double meaning in in the title of Zora Neale Hurston's book *Tell My Horse*, because that is what what is said by the voodoo practitioner who is possessed willingly by a, the spirit of a spirit of voodoo um so the possessed willingly and then the spirit has communications for the person being possessed and everybody around um in the ceremony as well and so tell my horse is that's what the the spirit Is calling the person they're possessing their horse Mm -hmm. and they have a message so they say tell my horse such-and-such but it also frees the practitioner from any like social mores uh, in terms of you know things that aren't supposed to be said the spirit uh, can say whatever the spirit wants and, and you can trans- the person is transgress not what was that
2: too? Sorry, you can trans- transgress gender boundaries. Oh yeah, um, as well. Yes,
1: quite easily. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Sorry, so I didn't a lot mean of to freedom. interrupt. No, no, no. That's a that's a really good point. And uh, you know, I want this to be more of a conversation. I don't take it over, but um, <laughs> I do want this. to... So you should just like push me over, just like Zora would, if you need to talk. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so so yeah, Tell My Horse is is a way to say things that can't be said. And so the book is that way as well. So um, many scholars who've read the book have all different interpretations of the multiple meanings of chapters in the book. So it's right. probably a lot deeper than what we're discussing now. We're just focusing on... You know what are the paranormal stories that that she uncovered uh, but anyway also uh, definitely read uh, Maya Darin's uh, The Divine Horseman uh, the Living Gods of Haiti because Maya Darin became mounted herself by um, yes Arzuli. Um she said like five or six times <laughs> and uh, that's a lot so uh, it, it's interesting that Zora never claimed to be mounted by the spirit, but Maya Darin did. So there's probably a lot more with Maya Darin that we could talk about. Um, but let's move on to a story from uh, Zora's travels. So she's in Haiti. She's um, at what's essentially the, the funeral of, of a voodoo priest. So this voodoo priest needs to have the spirit which momentarily possesses people um during uh, so these these spirits of the law um they momentarily possess um people during ceremony but uh the voodoo priest is thought to have one of these spirits in his head all the time so when they when a voodoo priest dies um you know, and they might have multiple spirits. I don't know if it's just one. But uh, they have to have this spirit removed. And so anyway, she's she's there with all the people. And the the man is laid out. The po- The priest is uh, laid out. And this is one where she's like, this happened so fast and was so unexpected. I don't know how they did that. So what happens is um, the body of the dead man this is the quote the body of the dead man sat up with its staring eyes bowed its head and fell back and then a stone fell at the feet so as she's, she, she then says here's another quote it was so unexpected that i could not discover how it was done um so she sees this dead man sit up under his own power, or maybe not his own power, maybe the the power of the spirit, essentially, so this dead man sits up and then falls back um and this stone falls at at his at the feet of the uh, presiding voodoo priest standing there next to the dead one, the dead voodoo priest so um now the, there's an idea uh in Haitian voodoo anyway that Um, these spirits can pass into stones and then out of stones again. So I think that's why the stone fell at the feet of the presiding priest. Um, Right. So she's amazed by this and there's the spirit of exaltation that comes um, comes over the group and she's really caught up in it and and, um, it's joyous but then all of a sudden A little later on, just on a dime, she feels this palpable evil. And the whole crowd is overcome by it, she says. And here's the quote. There were some odd noises from a human throat somewhere in the crowd behind me. And a man was possessed. And this is not in a good way. So this was thought to be by an evil spirit. And then the voodoo priest comes out and is able to exercise the spirit. So there's, there's possession that's okay, that is uh, wanted by participants. And then there can be some other things that might possess you. And this was one of those cases. So that was just interesting. Like for me, this part of the book where she describes like these, uh, like inhuman noises like coming from somewhere in the crowd and some a man behind her uh is the one who's possessed so but he's able to be freed uh, by the priest uh so i think that one is also amazing that's a really good one yeah (laughs) another uh favorite i'm sorry go ahead the whole thing
0: about the stone um is that it's supposed to come out of the the dead priest's mouth mm-hmm. or out of thin air, yeah, um, so that's why it dropped, just she didn't see it, it just appeared dropping that's that's what it's supposed to do, right, and then the the presiding priest takes it and then releases it after the ceremony is done that's right uh but yeah i i uh one of the reasons I think she never got possessed, she doesn't really talk about the ecstatic dancing, mm-hmm. th- her doing it. Maya Darren did participate in Definitely. the ecstatic dancing. And that's pretty much how possession happens in in voodoo. Right. Is the, the divine horseman, the loa, come down and ride you. That's what they call it. They ride yes. you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've seen people be ridden. It's, it's, uh, people get contorted in ways that aren't really ways that you think people should be contorted Mm. and they perform physical feats that don't look like they can do it. So it is interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, the other thing too is, you know, when I was mentioning the meaning of tell my horse, um, so... I don't want to say that nobody has ever like said they were possessed and not been possessed, and because they wanted to say something that they usually can't say, that could happen. But there are things done in the ceremony to prevent that. So, uh, yeah. So like putting um, clarin, which is you know clarified, uh, um, what is it? Not I'm real bad with alcohol. Um, talking about a gin, I think. Hmm. So anyway rum? There, rum. That's it. Rum, thank you. Yeah, that's I, rum is what
0: everybody likes the rum in the in the right.
1: Yeah. I knew it was three letters. <laughs> 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 but they chose gin, gin instead of rum. So anyway, there's this clarin that that uh, people drink. And um they will put like hot peppers in it. Yes. And make it like so hot and then pour it in your eyes. So and uh, Wade Davis really talks a lot um, about this kind of stuff too. And his um, he's another anthropologist, and he wrote a book called "The Serpent and the Rainbow." Serpent which, and
0: the Rainbow. Yes, which the is movie don't don't dis- don't don't even bother with the movie. Don't or bother. watch it as complete fiction. That's all it is. It right. has nothing to do with what's in the book. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> I I don't know how they could how they could say that was based on the book (laughs) because it is like so far away from anything um i mean in in the book the book's really great so um so he um he talks about you know seeing these incredible feats um when someone is mounted by the spirit or ridden by the spirit uh so i i don't want to say that um you know, this is made up because I don't really think it is. I mean, I think there's something to no. it in, in most cases. But as, as I said, Zora was skeptical, but then weird stuff happened to her. And she reports what happened. And we know that yeah. she had her own premonitions, um, which she swore by. So uh, another one had to do another... Uh, another like this weird story that again not sensationalist but still still you're wondering like how could this happen so um she stays with um someone called dr. Reza Um and that wasn't really his name but I think she wrote it this way because it was a palindrome and she, she she's signifying here that something else is going on in what she's saying like there's some double meanings um, in what she's saying, so there's a lot uh, to this chapter uh, that doesn't meet the eye exactly, but um, the the part that I'm going to talk about is um, so this this young woman comes to this um, guy who they talk they call a doctor, but he's not really a doctor. He's a leftover from the American occupation in Haiti, but um, so he's a white man living in Haiti. Um, but he he becomes enamored with culture and becomes a part of it, at least in some way. And he's put in charge of a mental institution. So uh, the chapter about him is super weird because they're on his porch uh, swinging on these huge bed swings um, in the heat of the day. And the servants are... Um, Giving them orange juice and lemonade and she's having the conversation with the doctor Um, And uh, so as this is going on, you know, these um, Inmates of the mental institution are all around them um, And these strange remarks come from them. So how much of that is something like parody or something that we're supposed to derive greater meaning out of or how literal it was I don't know but um, the paranormal aspect is so it's a really entertaining read because you can really envision them swinging on the porch and then this this woman comes and uh, she wants him to attend a, a ceremony that they have annually and um so it's a ceremony where food was to be cooked without fire. And and Zora is like, real food? And they're, they're like, yep, so we have a, a great pot of real food, enough to feed everyone that comes, and we're going to cook it without fire. And, and that's part of the magic of this family, this particular family. And uh, so this woman you know, uh, is like, really? Like, you you know, this woman is like trying to, trying to, uh, convince them that this is real. And they're like, really, how could this be possible? And, um, so she, she says, Hey, could you like get me, uh, let's see, what does she need? She needs a cup and saucer, a piece of laundry blue, um, and a, uh, cup of cold water and a fresh egg, so she doesn't want to provide any of this stuff because, like a magician, you know she knows that if she if she provides any of this stuff, you know there, there's going to be like some doubt whether of she trickery.
2: really, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, right. She'd have a way to trick them. So because they provide all the stuff, uh, there's no way to trick them, or you know, so Zora seems to think. So, um, all right, so she, she puts, uh, what does she do now? So she takes all the stuff, um, she takes the egg, she places it in in the cup, she pours some cold water over it, she covers the cup with a saucer and makes a, uh, the mark of the cross on the saucer with the bluing, um, which I don't know exactly what that is, laundry blue. Do you guys know? It's, it, it, it was a chemical
0: that was used to, um turn your whites white it's like bleach but it's not chlorine bleach
1: wow i love that you know that
0: compound <laughs> i'm old that's why i know that and i came from west virginia where everybody does things the old-fashioned way if you know for 50 extra years before anybody else does anything
1: wow so, um, well that's you know. amazing okay so um so but you'll you'll have to you'll have to tell us if you think it has chemical properties that can accomplish this so they they draw she draws a cross on the top um and then she um says a, a prayer for a few minutes with a bowed head in front of them and and she's she's trying to mumble uh, on purpose, so they don't know the exact words of the prayer. And when it was over, she lifted the saucer and offered the egg to Dr. Reza with a smile and told him to break it. And he's like, I don't want to break it because I'm going to get it all over my gray suit. <laughs> and she's like, no, it's it's cooked. And he's like, okay. And he breaks it, and uh, the egg is completely cooked through. Um. So, and they don't, they don't know why, but it seems to be harder in the center than anywhere else. And then um, he, he eats the egg and she, she tells him, don't worry, you're never going to die of poisoning. So this is a prophecy from the woman. Um, And uh, so Zora, again, this weird thing happens. She reports it and that's it. We don't know how that happened. She says she wants to go back someday and see if she can figure it out. She never gets back to do that. I um, feel like, but
2: bluing is just—it puts a tint of blue in the water because it—it mm-hmm. it literally is like a weak sort of dye almost, right? It is. And, and that's I how mean, it she, works.
1: She didn't even put the bluing in the in cup the
2: with thing. The ink, so there's no, no way didn't. that that can cause what a it's chemical made reaction. Out of?
0: What it's made out of, and yes, it is a very weak dye. Oh, I see your cat behind you, Morgana. She she Um, climbed up the chair. It's a very weak dye that counteracts the natural yellowing of white cloth that has been washed over and over. And it counteracts it with a very, very pale blue tint that the human eye perceives then as sparkling white. Oh, nice. It's an optical illusion.
1: But it doesn't um, cook food and it, without fire. But it does not cook food <laughs> no. without fire.
0: <laughs> it is it is also called stone blue or prussian blue. It's a blue iron salt. So it's wow, you know a lot about this. Wow. Oh, actually I'm looking it up on the Google to make sure I remember these things. <laughs>
1: okay, so um, it's great. I did not look up
0: my part. I just knew my part. Oh, so that's because of like Laura Ingalls
2: Wilder, I think. I think I know about it yeah. because of Laura Ingalls Wilder.
0: <laughs> there was also that, well, you that guys- storybook that you had where a cat falls into the blueing. That's you right, that? falls into the blueing. Yeah. The little white cat, and then she's blue, and then everybody yeah. thinks See? she's the cutest thing ever.
1: I love it that you guys know all this about laundry blue. I was like That's the most obscure thing. I'm like, what's laundry blue? Well, let me tell you what it is. <laughs> Great. Okay, so now um, I guess uh, t- to end, we gotta talk about Zora and the zombies.
2: I was going to be like, can we talk about zombies? <laughs> in part. Yes, we're going to talk about zombies. I have zombies yeah. on the brain. I'm going to Yeah, explain play why humans versus zombies in New York this week. Um so I'm very excited about zombies just wow. in general right now.
1: That sounds fun. What is that? Can you t- tell me more about okay. that? Okay.
2: It is a giant game of it, it's like if you it's it's basically cops and robbers but with humans and zombies. Um so everybody wears a ba- and zombies. big nerf guns. and big nerf guns, big big nerf guns that adults with more time and money and intelligence than they need designed to kill as many zombies as possible. Um, very very lots of bullets. Zombies very fast. always win in the,
0: the end. Zombies though. always
2: win.
1: Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah, but, they play it here in here in Athens like once or twice a year, but they're yes. going to the big meetup. Up in New York, yes, hundreds and hundreds of people. Oh, that's it's amazing! Running around. So basically,
2: if other. you get tagged by a zombie, you die. If you shoot a zombie, it stuns them until the next respawn time. Because you can't so you die. You kill don't get to be a
1: zombie yourself. No, you get
2: you get turned oh, into they can a zombie. You,
1: you oh, die you and can. turn okay. into a
2: zombie, and then you're a zombie yeah. and you're on the winning team. Oh, nice! And you join okay. the horde, and it's I love being a zombie. It's really cathartic. You get to chase people.
1: <laughs> that that sounds splendid. Well, so that's that's more of the George Romero type zombie, Yes. Right? The
2: we're very day yeah. of the dead yeah. or twenty eight days later or just any zombie yeah. movie zombies. Which right. are not like real zombies. No. No.
1: Right. So so the reason I think that zombies are so horrifying um in the Haitian culture, uh has to do with this. So, the the zombie is a slave in the Haitian culture, but it's a slave after death. So, in Haiti, you know, we were, t- we're talking about Jamaica and the Maroons who escaped into the, the mountains. Well, in Haiti, they re- the slaves revolted and they took over the country and that is awesome, but you have to understand you know, how much psychological baggage probably goes with that. that. Oh, yeah. That you were once a slave, and what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you in your nightmares is that is become you're going to be a slave again. again. Yeah. Right. And not you can't even die. You can't even die and go to heaven or, or um, you know, live amongst... Or, or be amongst the living, you, you know, you you can't become one of the low uh, you, you're just gonna become a slave and anything that you were, all of the things that you learned in life, all the things that you earned, are gone. You're nothing. So they don't want to be reduced to this nothingness of slavery again. So that's why I think the idea of the zombie came about now is it real is it not real oh i don't know this is a really tough one you're gonna have to help me with this but um there are uh, these days about um about uh a thousand cases of zombieism still reported each year in haiti or attested to that you know we we lost a loved one and then years later we found them again so everybody talks about clavius narcisse and uh he was a zombie um supposedly in the 70s that um that died and then came back and was recognized um, by members of the family and um so the purpose of the zombie is another thing we have to talk about too. But first, um, Zora Neale Hurston, she was the first one to take a photo of a zombie, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and, but I want to talk about what a zombie is. So at the time, and in Tell My Horse, this is discussed, and in Serpent in the Rainbow, that uh, uh, this is also attributed to Zora Neale Hurston. As uh, Zora, when she was there. She had some idea that um, zombies were brought about not by supernatural means, but um, by pharmacological pharma- means, by drugs. Right, so, right. But uh, she didn't have an
0: idea as to what it was. Right. But she, um, and, she just knew yes. that there was something that made them look dead and seem dead. But then they could be resurrected,
1: right? But brain damaged. Yes, absolutely. That's, and
0: th- she's very clear about that. They lose the power of speech, and it never comes back. Yes,
1: and they lose their personality and their memory, and their, yeah. their soul. Essentially, is what yeah. the the um, the Bokor, you know, the the dark side kind of. Uh, a voodoo right. priest is thought to um, be able to. Um, so the paranormal side is that yes, these are poisons. But then the um, the bokor takes your soul, your tibannage, and takes it out of your body. So you still have this animating principle. You still can move around and stuff. But you're not yourself anymore. You're, you're just. It's just you're reduced to dumb flesh, and your yes, soul, a body your or a beast. Yes, yeah, you're you're like a beast uh, in in their conception of what that means, and then so the 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 tibonage, the the spirit is captured uh, by the bokor, and so uh, how are zombies released? Well, you know, pretty much like the bokor dies, or maybe converts to Christianity, um, or somebody uh, breaks the bottle that your soul was kept in, or. Um, you know, sometimes um, you can experience some of the things in life, like somebody gives you food with salt in it, and that starts reviving you. So, um, that their ideas about like z- zombieism might not be permanent. That that you know, there right. are ways that you will one day be freed, but you'll you'll never be the same. But this is how you no. get away. So um, then, Wade Davis was able to follow on. Um, this um, pharmacological research and find that the active ingredient in zombie poison is the puffer, puffer, I was having a hard time producing things today. Pufferfish. I just got caught on that. It's the (laughs) puffer, pufferfish. Pufferfish toxin. There you go. I said it for you. (laughs) Pufferfish toxin. There we go. Uh, Tetrodotoxin. See, I can say that, but I can't say puffer. What is the deal? Anyway, <laughs> so, so they they give the the victim this uh, poison, and uh, the victim looks like they're dead, and then uh, they're buried. Um, well, essentially, they're mostly crypts above ground, um, and. and uh, can be in cemeteries, but also more commonly like uh, on your land, near your house, you might have these above-ground crypts, and uh, so that's where you're placed, um, and you know, the idea is that the Bukur comes later, digs you up, or you know, like breaks through the, the, um, tomb the crypt, Yeah. and yes, exhumes you, and then revives you with, with another poison called the Tura. Also known colloquially as zombie cucumber, so um, that is what Detura. Gets yeah, you up and that can out of that, that death can, state. That can
0: definitely mess. It can mess with your head, though. That could, if oh, you yeah. kept giving Detura over and mm-hmm. over, over, yeah. could destroy your memory and your personality. Right. Well, and it can um, hallucinate it, yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes it, it would be like a perpetual trip which would explain why zombies you know often are distressed and scream a lot when they you know get and away from the becore. they're clumsy they they can't speak properly they scream at seemingly nothing because she describes right. a woman who had been a zombie uh her name is felicia
1: yes Bye, felicia, uh, felicia um, <laughs> felix mentor where right. is her ahead. last
0: name. I was like, mm-hmm. Felicia Felix. Um, anyway, she saw her and the, the woman, there was no, this is the woman she photographed and there was no cognizance in, of anything except she was afraid. She was right. constantly afraid. She was constantly trying to cover her head yeah. and her face and cower. In that's fear. a
1: sad that yeah. is such a sad part so so um, here's the story of felicia Felix mentor um, and this picture is in the print edition of the book taken uh, october twenty fourth nineteen thirty six i believe so um anyway um, Felicia dies in nineteen oh seven and then reappears in nineteen thirty six and a doctor friend of Zora notifies her that a zombie has been found in the road uh, and was taken um, to uh, this mental institution. So so uh, taken um, from a nearby hospital um, where she's identified by uh, members of the family and then taken to this uh, institution. And um, the doctors there uh, are like, hey, Zora, you can... You can come and investigate, and that's where she takes the first-ever photo of the zombie. But it's just sad to think of um, Felicia, who, you know, had a husband, had a young child, and is just ripped out of her life and now comes back so many years later. Her husband doesn't want anything to do with her. Her child doesn't know her, and she's just lacked away in an institution. I mean, they're taking care of her, but obviously she still has um, the trauma associated. Um, right, because you were the,
2: systematically poisoned
0: and right, made to do God an, knows and who what. who knows what she survived.
1: Right, I mean, and the... Who knows? It, it's just sorry, horrible. Yeah, it's um No,
0: it's just how was she abused right. or treated by her owner, essentially, yes. Be- because that you go to a plantation and... Cut sugarcane or whatever, or who knows what else right but, Abs- yeah
1: absolutely, and there's lots of um roles for um zombies given in you know tell my horse there's there's you know certainly people that are slave labor on the plantations, but there's this idea that there you know there could be like big kind of enforcer zombies that you yeah. cross somebody mm-hmm. and then they send a zombie to do you in um or the the saddest one I mean Felicia's a really sad story because uh, as you said uh you know barb she's uh she's cowering you know in the courtyard and trying to cover her head and she she grabs a you know when she sees people coming she grabs a a branch from a nearby tree and and uses it to to sweep dirt from the ground to show that she's busy so that she yeah. does yeah so they uh, won't they won't, won't her. hit her yeah. So, um, other than that, there's other things described, um, in the book of, um, of pickpocket zombies in the market, like little kids. Um, oh. so, like little kids that are turned into zombies and, um, become uh, pickpockets for crime lords or something like that. Or there's even little girl zombies that, um, that are selling coffee in the mornings, like you hear their haunting cries. Um, So, you know, Zora, you know, I don't know if she sees all those things, but these are certainly stories that people have told her that she's relating. And, uh, you know, she also talks about, um, uh, she also talks about uh, another instance where little girls are used. Um, So there's this woman who has a lot of, who has a lot of daughters, and again we're back to the expiration date thing. So yeah. Uh, she, she, yeah, she pretty says, much. She she says, you know, daughters are perishable goods, and she's got to marry them off before they get too old, too long in the tooth, right? Uh,
0: <laughs> and they're not very old. I'm, I, I'm yeah, not, yeah, absolutely. They're not. They're not what you call old maids in Appalachia or been around right. for 20, 25 right. years. You know, yes. they, these are young.
1: Yes, so she talks. She talks about, she talks about uh, this other woman, who who knows, um, who knows the mother that has all these daughters she's trying to marry off, and she notices that, you know, for a while there's no takers, and then suddenly, you know, this this mother is marrying off these these daughters like crazy, and um, so this neighbor of this mother goes uh, to church, and there's there's a church service that you can go to like before dawn like at like three thirty in the morning or whatever um and you don't have to dress for church then you just like show up in your pajamas or whatever and then you, you know you've done your duty so um this neighbor of this mother with all the daughters she um she's like gonna go to these the super early service um but she wakes up too early and she ends up Arriving at the church an hour or an hour ahead of time, and she sees that um up uh you know in the front of uh, of the church, you know sitting underneath the cross there's there's these zombie girls that are praying, and somehow, I don't know exactly how she works it out, but she works out that that these I think she questions them about what they're doing, and they are able to speak a little bit to give her the clue that what they are doing is they're praying so that these daughters will be married off. So that's another way to use zombies, to to sit there and... To pay a debt, Yes, in in essence. Yes, and... you know, as far as the purpose of zombies, uh, Zora does talk about them as sacrifices in return for prosperity given by the Loa. Um, and then um, Wade Davis talks about them as a way to exact justice uh, for crimes yeah. the law can't or won't resolve, like in, in the... Um, Situation with the land dispute uh, dispute with uh, Clavius Narcisse um, You know he he did some unsavory things to get land and uh, that's why his family turned him into a zombie um, So there's lots of different reasons um, Now uh, So this this woman Felicia Felix mentor who's photographed by Zora uh, You know she you know who knows what happened to her but, you know, she's obviously in a horrible state of fear and um, in poor mental health. And uh, Zoro wants to get to the bottom of this. Like, what are the ingredients in the zombie poison? But some say that uh, she had another premonition, that she was in imminent danger. And she actually did become horribly ill and felt that... Perhaps someone didn't want her to know about uh, any more about the zombie poison, and had had started to poison her in some way. Because remember, this is Zora's field of study. She wrote a lot about um, different poisons that were used, different medicines that were used. And so I'm sure she wanted to get to the bottom of it. But, you know, she's a woman in, uh, you know, the 1930s. Um, It's amazing that she's traveling alone as it is. And and then so she's in a (laughs) foreign country. She's looking into things she's probably not supposed to be looking into. And uh, unfortunately... Uh, or or maybe fortunately she she feels that threatened and she leaves. So we never, you know, she was yeah. never able yeah. to uncover. We never the find formula. out. Right, absolutely. I
0: I read in in that chapter she was she had worked out that it wasn't that they were bringing back the dead. They were bringing yes. people out of death, and that the way one of the ways that you prevented a loved one from becoming a zombie because they didn't do embalming then. She said there was no embalming, mm-hmm. and that's why they could do the zombie yeah. creation. But one of the things that people would do would be to inject poison into the the dead person's heart. Right, or cut their
1: heads because off. They,
0: or cut their heads yes. off, cut their hands. My favorite one, that I mean, makes that's... Sense.
1: That's just really sad, but they wanted the worst thing was becoming a zombie, so they wanted to save their loved one from that horrible fate. Yeah, it uh, makes perfect and, sense. And they're and dead; my, it's not going to hurt them. Uh, yes, right. And my, my, but my favorite is that she also talks about um, in in that part of the book. She talks about them um, somehow uh, putting a sharp knife. In the hand yes. of the corpse, in in yes. such a way, with such a mechanism that when the Bokor starts to retrieve them, they stab the Bokor <laughs> through, you know, some right. t- type of automatic like spring, device. Right. Spring-loaded. Like a spring
0: thing. Yes. Spring load the corpse so they can <laughs> stab. Yeah, that was a good
1: one. <laughs> that that was like my that. favorite. I'm like, you make That's it. That's a make
0: great a image. You
1: did. That's a great <laughs> image. stabbed you. So um, I'm sorry. That's macabre. But I just feel no, like. No, that's great. Well, he had it coming. <laughs> right. He sure did.
0: The Bokor were not nice people. And she did say to a couple of her friends, like, I know that there's a poison involved. I yes. don't know what it is, and I don't know how they get it to the victim. Right. And she said, I really want to find out. Do you think I could find out? And they were like, You know, you don't. I, I don't. Don't, I don't go don't think messing that's around. Good. Yeah you that's something will happen to you. And then she had the premonition and then she was like, okay, fine, yeah. Yeah, and okay. she
1: did get sick. So she's like, yeah. Hey, I think this this is my this is my cue. So, <laughs> mm, yeah.
0: Yep. It's time to exit. Exit stage left. Right. Bye.
1: But you know, she did incredible work as it is. Yeah. And um yeah. so you know, the other thing, you know, to just uh cap this off about zombies. Uh, they are in the Haitian Penal Code. So, if, if you zombify someone, that is tantamount to murder. So, um, it is treated just like murder. Um, if you are a bokor that is, um, trying to make someone a zombie, that's a, that's attempted murder. Um, so it is in there, in legal code. Now, what do, what do, um... What does modern medicine think of this? Well, uh, there was a study that was published in 1997 in The Lancet, um, in which a Haitian doctor and a British anthropologist went to Haiti and they were able to do three case studies with zombies. Um, So these were people that were really believed to be returned zombies and uh, they were able to do DNA analysis and find that uh, two of them were, two of the three were uh, cases of mistaken identity. So, uh, and they tried, they, they wanted to like exhume the bodies, but of course, you know, the family didn't want that either. They didn't want somebody to open the crypt. So, but they did allow the DNA analysis and so they were able to tell that these people that the families ardently believed were their deceased loved one returned, were actually someone else. But one and was. What was if two, that?
2: If two were mistaken identity, what about the one that wasn't?
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm most interested in that one. I couldn't find uh, much more information. Oh um, man! But, but the, but they were able to talk with them all and assess them all and in you know all three cases they came out with various diagnoses for um, you know different brain disease and uh, epilepsy organic brain diseases um, you know maybe maybe brain damage brought about by other means that might not be have been poison and so they, they came away with, with these um, diagnoses of, um, in, in a couple of the cases, mental illness. Yeah. So they, felt, they feel like this is societally, um, you know, this, this idea of zombies is something that grew out of the culture and societally now in, in an area with lower resources. Uh, to take care of, you know, people who are suffering from uh, mental disease. Uh, this is a way that, you know, that these people can be incorporated back in the community. Okay. Um, it, so that, I'm not saying, not saying that there's never a case of the zombie poisoning, because there's definitely people that the doctors met with. Um, so there's a study that's actually published in Lancet, but they did make a documentary about it, too, that I watched, And, um, so in addition to the reading that you can do, you can seek out this documentary on YouTube and, uh, also, uh, see like one of the, the, uh, that they, former Bokur that they met with who talked about the poisoning. And it was interesting because he talked about like some of the, the symptoms of, um, the poisoning that I had never heard about that, you know, the person, um, you know, suddenly dies apparently and their body swells up and they stink to high heaven. So you got to get them in the ground right away. I had never heard that before. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that came out, you know, the book core was telling them that. And then the family, um, the family, some of the, a uh, couple of the uh, family members were recording that in at least one case that, that this is what happened to uh, their, their son that he, that he Died so unexpectedly, bloated up, but smelling like this terrible smell, like not just rotting flesh smell, but you know, something like just beyond that. Um, yeah, and then that's why they had to get him in the ground so quickly. So, so there's a lot to it. I'm not saying that every zombie is a mental uh, health situation, but uh, you know, I think that's probably plausible in uh, many of the cases just because. Of of the the population density in right. Haiti is such that you can't really have you know these vast zombie work workforce you know you can't have this vast zombie army out there like where would you we'll hide not them? see them
2: and, yeah right.
1: yeah it's it's different now yes I, I mean it back in the day to,
2: it sounds to me like yeah. some do- some scientist somewhere needs to get hold of a bunch of rats. And a bunch of t- 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 pufferfish toxin. And see <laughs> well, if he can't go. make some zombies. <laughs> make some zombie rats. To see if this works. Yeah,
1: yeah I don't know if they did if the way Davis did that. Um, they certainly did that in the movie. <laughs> they did some yeah. ex- experimentation. Uh, but I don't know if they actually did that in real life. Um, I don't remember. Or if I'll it have would... To- reread the book. Yeah, or, or
0: maybe it, would it wouldn't work
2: on rats, rats because the they don't way, have don't souls know. in the same way that humans have souls maybe. I think rats have souls, but I don't know if cosmological uh, it may not
1: work on their brains yeah. the same way. Yeah, so you know,
0: it's I just think she was really really bright to figure out that no, this is some organic process. Oh yeah. But she she couldn't do what Wade Davis did later. I mean, she basically made the foundation for him to come in in the what nineteen eighties nineteen nineties and figure it out, yes,
1: and he does acknowledge you know. that he does acknowledge that in the book, he does mention her by name, you know, so that's good because. Um, she's left out of a lot of things, which really makes me angry. Like, um, there's a PBS show that I like called Monstrum. And they did a whole three-part yeah. series on zombies. And they don't even mention Zora Neale Hurston. And to me, that's that's a glaring omission.
2: Yeah. Because,
1: yeah. you know, she, like I said, um, to me, she is a paranormal investigator. Um, What she did was embed herself in uh, different cultures and learn everything that she could um, about their practices, paranormal in some cases, not paranormal in others. And she was able to, to, you know, separate those out and and, uh, you know, teach the reading public as much as, as she could. So she made major contributions um, to, the, to paranormal study, and so that's why I think she should be recognized for that, uh, in addition to all her literary contributions.
0: here, hear, which are massive. <laughs>
1: yes. I mean, there's, there's a
0: lot there. She even wrote a cookbook. Oh, I didn't know that. If, if God can cook, so can I, I think is oh, nice. the name of it. Oh, I have to look it up. But yes, she had a, a cookbook of Southern African American recipes. Oh, Excellent. I want to see what's in there. I do too.
1: <laughs> I don't think <sighs> there's. I know much, there's cornbread. I, I don't. Oh, I love cornbread. I don't think there's probably much <laughs> vegan uh, no, in there. No, probably who knows? not. No, probably there, not. There, there could be. There could be. Uh, True. S- some greens, but I'm sure um, there, there's a. a Lots of um, modifications I could make and still oh, get yes. that. Oh yeah, Zora Neale Hurston flavor.
0: I'm sure you can. You can use uh, Spanish smoked paprika. There you go. That's that. That gets you the bacon taste or the ham hock. Absolutely. Taste. And tastes good.
1: Well, well. Thank, much
0: better. Thank you yeah, for talking any...
1: to me about Zora. I I know we went over again, but I love talking No, it's to you. okay. It's okay. And you, and you are, know, okay. like such incredible things that I didn't know. <laughs> so good it, old
0: laundry blueing.
1: Yes. <laughs> it, it's fun it's so much fun talking with you guys. Um, you know, because it, it's a great conversation.
2: Yeah. Um and that we that, all uh, learn eliminates. some other tidbit about
1: what we're yeah. yes, you were talking we about. Like I come in with random little... tidbits and
2: mom knows stuff and you are the professor. I know you're not a real professor, but <laughs> in my heart you're you're my professor.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That really means a lot to me.
0: Well, thank you for showing up. And we've tried to record this for a long time, (laughs) y'all. We finally got it. Um,
1: And we'll have you back sometime. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Like maybe there's there's plenty of other women in the paranormal to talk about. Um, There are... You know, people in cryptozoology, if you're interested in that. There's, of course, Maya Deren, who we mentioned. uh, But there's probably a lot more to that as well. Um, There's many, many unsung heroes out there that we could talk about.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you all for listening. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.